0: Well, I think professional learning is essential. It's not a, it's not an add-on. It's not a nice to have. It's essential. Uh, it's essential for teachers to learn and to continue to develop their craft and their practice, their identities themselves, um, their communities. Uh, it's essential for their well-being because part of that, part of teachers' well-being, is actually around that feeling of um, of learning and growing and, and doing things better and reflecting on practice and collaborating meaningfully and those kind of things.
1: Welcome to Lighting a Fire, all things teaching and learning with the Teaching Council.
2: Welcome to episode number seven in the Teaching Council's Lighting a Fire podcast series. The podcast where we discuss all things teaching and learning with a diversity of voices. My name is Thomas O'Rourke and I'm the director and CEO of the Teaching Council here in Ireland. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by our guest host for this episode. That's Dr. Finn O'Murikou, who is the head of school post-primary in Mary Immaculate College, Thurles. Finn, it's great to have you on board for this uh, podcast with Dr. Deborah Nelitsky. Just introduce yourself and for a few moments listen to the listeners of the podcast.
1: Hello, good morning, everybody, and good evening, Deborah. Um, my name is Finn, Finn Omerhu. As Tomal said, I'm head of school in Mary Immaculate College in Thurles. It's a teacher preparation college. Uh, We have approximately 500 students between undergraduate and postgraduate. Uh, My life before being head of school, I was a senior inspector with the Department of Education and Skills, the ministry here in Ireland. And before that, I was a practising post-primary teacher in Carrigaline in County Cork. So thank you.
2: He is actually from County Cork, just to verify that fact. So... (laughs) (laughs) Well, <laughs> and so we ask each guest co-host the same question before we kick off. The, the title of the series, "Light and the Fire," in terms of
1: education, teaching, and learning, what does that phrase evoke for you? Yeah, it, it evokes uh, excitement, uh, a hint of danger, um, an element of intrigue, maybe a little bit of mischief. Uh, that's 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 going that's going very early. Uh, I guess in more practical terms, it's about building capacity. It's about the multiplier effect. It's about um, teacher preparation over teacher training in that sense of it's education. It's giving people a repertoire of responses rather than telling them what to do. Um, And that would be my immediate response to to what you just said.
2: Well, the latter part of your answer is very erudite for I have to say. But for the purpose of this episode, I'm going to go back to the very beginning about mischief. Danger, you know, that to be a very good tagline for this this particular podcast, I would think. Um, so coming to our guest, which I'm really excited about, um, our guest for today's episode is Dr. Deborah Nedelitsky. She's a research associate at, the Murdoch, at Murdoch University and also head of teaching and learning in St. Mark's Anglican Community School in Australia. Deborah is, among other things, a school leader, a teacher, a researcher, and she's also the author of the book, Transformational Professional Learning, Making a Difference in Schools. Deborah, it's great to have you with us.
0: Thank you, Jamal. It's great to be here.
2: You've been on two of our international webinars so far in the Learning for All series, May of last year and most recently as well, with a, an equally you know, stellar panel. So it's really good to have, have just you now, actually. But I think your comments and your thoughts have always been really intriguing, uh, certainly, and very, very thought provoking and also very inspirational. So, Deborah, just in terms of the kickoff, we asked the same, our guests in these episodes the same opening question. School, when you were growing up, what was it like for you?
0: Well, I'm from uh, Perth in Western Australia, and my schooling was uh, in public schools, which here means government schools, so local government schools, Uh, although I did move around quite a lot with my parents when I was young, so probably every 12 to 18 months uh, from kindergarten until about year four or five, I was uh, in different schools. making new friends and then quickly having to say goodbye and moving on. Uh, Lived in Melbourne, Papua New Guinea, and then back in Perth eventually. Uh, And eventually my parents decided to stop moving. Uh, And then um, I got that last school that I landed in when we got back to Perth, uh, put me up a grade. So I ended up when I finished high school being, uh, I set my final tertiary entrance exams at 15, 15. I turned 16 after they'd all finished, after leavers, as we call it in Australia. And um, so I started uni at 16 years old. Uh, and I would have described my schooling as um, that I was a closet nerd, maybe. So as in someone who uh, really enjoyed school, enjoyed learning, but I hung out with some kind of uh, pretty cool cats, cool crowds. Uh, so I would, you know, hang out with my really cool friends and then go home and study really, really hard um, and get good grades. So um, but I sort of did that, you know, on my own, not because it was a cultural thing to do. Uh, but yeah, so just suburban, um, local government schooling, really, uh, and schooling that I enjoyed. So, I think I never intended uh, to be a teacher, certainly not till later after I'd done my first undergraduate degree. Uh, I think that was partly because I also had a few run-ins with authority when I was at school and didn't like the sort of school environment in terms of that authoritarian nature that it it was in those days. Uh, So, yeah, that was my kind of experience that I was good at school and enjoyed it but didn't necessarily enjoy the way that school Happened to students, but certainly had some inspirational teachers that that made a big difference to me um, in terms of being seen and being inspired.
2: There's about ten questions I could ask you based on on that piece alone for the two podcasts. Because you, you say you could describe yourself as a closet nerd, but given you're in Papua New Guinea, if I heard you correctly. You moved across four or five different schools initially. You were in uni at sixteen. Uh, you moved up a grade. And then you know, you seem to look, one of the highest compliments the Irish can pay our foreign guests, and I said it to a Canadian once, is, "And this was a Nick like yourself, equally accomplished, you know, many different things on the go." I said, "You sicken me, you know," and, and that's actually a compliment coming from the Thank Irish. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, is that what I say? <laughs> exactly. So, h- how? I mean. It, it doesn't strike me as a closet nerd, Deborah. I mean, you seem to be kind of highly accomplished in that sense of being able to have the time for your, you know, your social uh, space and so on, then hitting the books, achieving it at a very young age and so on. That's, that's, how has that shaped your own sense and your understanding, particularly when you say at the end, you, know, you, you did well in school, but you didn't like the way school was done to many students. In what way do you think, if any, that shaped your thoughts and your, your approach to education now as a leader and as a researcher and as a teacher?
0: Well, I think, uh, I mean, part of my PhD was around professional identity of teachers and school leaders and and a lot of what people talked about in the interviews that I did for that research study were, was around that their own schooling influenced their own identity as a teacher uh, and, and their own identity as a leader was often around leaders that they had worked with or worked for and those things to do and those things not to do, who they wanted to be like and who they wanted not to be like so sort of the anti so and so um so I think I mean it was interesting so my I've always followed my own passions I suppose and my own interests and I always do what sort of gets me out of bed in the morning and I think that's uh partly why I do what I do and you know they're saying if you want something done give it to a busy person the more I do the more I seem to be able to do Uh, but so I mean my first degree was in fine art uh and then um I've sort of got a uh, masters, and I've got a, a, a teaching qualification, and then I did my PhD uh, when I was in um, uh, sort of quite a few schools. Schools in, but when I, I just had my second child, he was six months old. I had a two-year-old. I was going back to work, and I thought, let's enrol full-time in a PhD. <laughs> that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> said to my husband. Uh, I reserve the right to think this is a really bad idea. Um, but it kind of worked out, and it was because all of those things were nurturing and nourishing for me in different ways. Um, it was not really sustainable in hindsight, but it, it did work, kind of work out in the end.
2: I mean, PhD full-time with the family and everything else, uh, what was that like? I mean, you say in hindsight probably wasn't sustainable, but describe what it was like to be going there at the time, especially for teachers who will not be listening to this podcast Engage their own postgraduate study, be it master's, PhD level, their stress, they probably, probably like yourself, have young kids and so on, or have families and so on. If you could go back to yourself in that space, you know, not change what happened, but what would you say to yourself? What would you say to teachers are in the same space as you at the time?
0: I'm not sure what I'd say to myself because I'm not, I don't regret any of the decisions that I made and I know why I made them, but Mm -hmm. I got into some quite bad habits about never having a break from anything. Uh, because I sort of saw the reason that it worked for me was because I saw every, everything that I did, I saw as a break from something else but there was never actually a break, if that makes sense. So my, yes. work, so my work was a break from parenting and my PhD was like brain time that was just for me that was intellectually stimulating and a break from, you know, the other things. And so I, every, I sort of talked myself into this idea that, that everything was a little holiday from something else, but actually um, I got sort of, you know, to the end of that and thought, well, I haven't actually had a, a break from all of the things uh, for some time now and I need to relearn how to um, maybe – yeah, have some actual pauses that are not filled with other things.
2: You should talk to my wife mm. because that that describes exactly me in terms of you know, oh, I'll read this or I'll write the other, and it's a break from the other thing. And I think and it's nurture and nourish in its own way, but the the avoidance of being still, the avoidance of actually just doing nothing. Uh, I, I said a recent to a group of principles about give yourselves five minutes of kindness each day. You shouldn't feel guilty. You know, I know you're kind of you know, uh, you know might feel you know an, an obligation to be there for your staff. You are the school leader. If it all falls on your shoulders, and if you can't possibly stay quiet for five minutes because everyone else is, is relying on you, but you need those five minutes of of, of kindness. <laughs> in terms of leadership, and Finn, I'm going to come in this in a moment, but I just want to start off this strand if you don't mind, and and from that Deborah, in terms of professional learning for teachers. Because it's a, it's a huge uh, area of concern in the us versus the teaching council. So we want to obviously we're promoting what we call teachers' learning. We're, we're not too keen the to term CPD, but that's just our position. Um, and the real politics will be in in, a, in any given jurisdiction where there's a state budget involved. Teachers pay, rightly, is number one priority. And uh, any additional spending, which is not insignificant, on CPD or teachers' learning for teachers, will always be the first target in any austerity, in any retrenchment, in any economic uh, slowdown. And yet we're coming to, we're coming to realise in teacher supply in Ireland the importance of what's now called upskilling. But the point being that any post-qualification learning to support teachers, we must invest them on an ongoing basis. So, given those pressures at the macro-political level, given the human pressures you've spoken so movingly of uh, from your own experience, which I'm sure will resonate with others, certainly with me, professional learning can get squeezed a lot. It can get really kind of, it's an it's add-on, it's an afterthought, nice to do, but if you're not teaching the class, you ain't doing your job. I stop talking now, what would your thoughts be in response to all those kind of competing pressures in terms of teachers' professional learning? Well, I
0: think professional learning is essential. It's not a... It's not an add-on it's not a nice to have it's essential uh, It's essential for teachers to learn and to continue to develop their craft and their practice their identities themselves, um, their communities uh, it's essential for their well-being because part of that part of teachers well-being is actually around that feeling of, um, of learning and growing and, and doing things better and reflecting on practice and collaborating meaningfully and those kind of things. Uh, And when I looked at professional learning, I looked at what I called um, transformational professional learning. So, not um, what's the most expensive, not what's the shiniest, but actually what is it that makes a difference? What is it that um, changes not just – I suppose I looked at – I think the interesting thing about professional learning is that it's not going on a course. It's not – you do need to invest time and money in it, but it's not the fact that you did invest money into someone that they will change what they do. Because I think we talked a little bit about identity uh, teachers and school leaders are, you know, it's a vocation, it's a calling, it's a deep desire to help and others and to contribute and have a positive contribution. And so, when we look at professional learning, what's going to change someone's behaviour actually needs to change their beliefs. You don't change your practice unless you change what you believe is the right thing to do, is the most helpful for students. Because I think our what we do as teachers is so tied up in who we are and who we, what we believe in terms of what's helpful, that um, a lot of the time professional learning needs to change what we believe. And so when I, I guess I found that um, we kind of need to broaden our idea about what professional learning is. So in Western Australia, uh, we can count uh, formal learning and informal learning, professional reading, collaboration, meetings with others, networking, um, networks. So, so we can kind of... Um, count up as part of our hours some of those more informal things. And the interesting thing I found in my PhD when I interviewed school leaders and teachers and said, what is the most meaningful professional learning you've done? Sometimes it was postgrad grad study. Sometimes it was a course, a particular moment at a conference. Sometimes it was the coffee conversation at the conference. Uh, sometimes it was things that were absolutely outside of education, it was a job that they had before, it was um, volunteering at an orphanage in India, it was their their memory of their grandparent and what that person had meant in terms of mentoring and teaching. So, and those are obviously things you can't necessarily count up to your hours. <laughs> I professionally learned. Uh, but I do think we can think more broadly about um, – so, I think I'm in two minds. On the one hand, I'm saying it's really important and it's essential. And on the other hand, it doesn't have to cost a lot. It just needs to be really intentional. It also needs to be highly individualized, differentiated for context, for individual, for career stage, for aspiration. Uh, And I think ideally it involves some kind of collaboration and usually also someone really listening to the person, whether that's through a coaching relationship or a leader who's saying, what is it that you want to where do you want to go? What do you want to learn? How you want to develop? And then let's find ways that are going to work for you to get there.
2: And do you want to comment on the identity piece here, about, especially Deborah's comments in terms of um, how bound up with teachers' own self-identity and what they believe professional learning can be? But I think you have a, a particular interest in this area you might want to explore, it, Deborah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, Deborah, first of all, I'm curious when you say count up the hours, is that within that mandatory sense of, of teacher professional development?
0: Yeah, so in Australia, we've got a 20-hour minimum professional learning that we all have to do each year.
1: Okay, and and there's a, how shall I say, a liberal interpretation of what that actually might be?
0: So in some states, it's it can only be certified professional learning, so then it becomes quite Commercialized in some ways, but in my state, it is, uh, there's a list of activities that count as professional learning. So it depends where you are in Australia, what that looks like.
1: That, that reminds me, Deborah, of Tomas, what, what we call COSON, which is the pathway around teacher professional learning, uh, as exemplified by Teaching Council's good work. Um, and I guess one of, one of the things that I, I'm interested in is that apostrophe S when we talk about teachers' professional learning. It's S apostrophe in that collective sense. So I, I I liked what you were saying about the interplay between the individual and the collective. Uh, and I'm just wondering, is there um, maybe an intentional or unintentional positive dividend around professional learning when it's done in a collaborative sense that plays out uh, for you as a principal in a positive sense in what happens in your school?
0: In terms of, are you asking around the importance of collaborative learning versus individual learning?
1: Well, it, it, in the school it,
0: environment,
1: yeah, in the sense that sometimes in Ireland we have a very individual trajectory around formal professional learning; that it might be a career trajectory uh, as opposed to uh, a, a within class trajectory, if I can if I can call it that. Um, on our postgraduate middle leadership, there there was a, a student who spoke one day who said you know what's the program about and another student said it's about you and 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 that was a very nice answer in the sense of the as you as you alluded to the sense of value the sense of self being at the heart of of what you're about but equally another student spoke about you know let's say taking leadership as an example she said you know sometimes leadership is about where you want to be as in that career trajectory but sometimes leadership is about who you want to be, where you are, which is a, which is a, which is a different take on, uh, and I guess, in a sense, I'm coming back to the word motivation and what motivates people, and there could be multiple reasons for for taking on something, including having to do the twenty hours, but <laughs> outside of that, there would be you know more meaningful and maybe more um, soul related uh, reasons. But my question was about the individual teacher chasing the professional learning, but the manner in which they engage in the professional learning supports a collaborative culture back in the school. Does that make sense?
0: Yes. So I might just bring it back to the example of my school, for instance, because that's a a sort of practical example. And I think you always have to balance the individual and the collective. Uh, And in terms of approving PL, for instance, I sort of think a bit of an 80-20 rule, like 80% of professional learning should be at least aligned with organisational strategy values, um, those kind of things. But 20% might be just something that is really that person's dream, passion, an area in which they want to develop. And then so at my school, for instance, we've got a suite of in-house expectations and options. So everyone has a conversation with their line manager at the beginning of the year about What is your reflection on last year? What are your professional goals? What sort of professional learning do you want? How can we help you to get there so that they're understood and they can be um, supported in that? They also have to choose something that is internal to the school, so where they are collaborating with others. So we have uh, opt-in groups which are working towards strategic initiatives. Uh, I'm running a leadership development series for our middle and aspiring leaders In terms of if that's something you're interested in, uh, what does that look like? What are the theories of it? Let's get some leaders in to talk to us about it. Let's have some events. Um, so there's also, um, triads where people are working in groups of three as teachers to observe one another's lessons. There are coaching and mentoring relationships, you know, possibly mentoring for earlier career teachers, coaching for our middle leaders or more veteran staff. So it's really about honoring people and where they're at and where they want to go but offering alternatives and then we also have professional learning budget which is about what are you applying for Uh, and some of those might be individual and sometimes we might say gee this would be great to send a group so that there can be ongoing discussion and work post this kind of learning opportunity so I think it's about a kind of multi-pronged approach which balances knowing that individual and their needs with also aligning it with what a school or organisation is about in terms of what we're all trying to move forward in that shared purpose and shared vision.
1: I, I would think, and, and Tomas, correct me if I'm wrong, that that sense of a school budget is is not something that we traditionally would have here. Uh, and I'm just, uh, for clarification, Deborah, I'm just wondering, is there um, uh, a mandated external ministry-led Professional learning menu, or is it very much uh, driven by the school and the school's needs in that 80 20 piece as you described?
0: Well, that's really just my personal view <laughs> as I'm making decisions uh, overseeing the professional learning of mm. teaching staff. Uh, in some states, that professional learning needs to be sort of certified via an institute. So, um, you know, sort of that's been decided to be of a particular quality, I suppose. Uh, in Western Australia and other states, it's, it's just about anything that's on offer. So, it could be a webinar. It could be a conference that's on offer. Uh, it could be, you know, something, you know, whatever it is that that um, – uh, curriculum authorities offering or it's so it's a range of things that's, that staff might become aware of um, or be shoulder tapped to be involved in, depending on
1: to what extent it's linked to something that the school is pursuing. OK, that, that, that's really interesting to most as well, because what we what we might have here is upwards of 500 teachers who are part of curriculum coaching and supporting uh, curriculum rollout more often than not. Some element of assessment, but more, more often than not, curriculum rollout. Um, and it's it's a different model, obviously, in the sense we don't have the school budget, and and also um, your 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 other Australian colleague, if I can call Pasi Salberg, your Australian colleague, talks about the place of the institution and its relationship around professional learning with with the schools, which again would be something that yes we do have it here, but very much on uh, an individual contract with an individual student. Or sorry, teacher, yeah. as opposed to uh, an institutional response uh, or a systemic response, I guess.
2: Can, can I pick up just, and uh, this is a really interesting part of the conversation because you used a lovely sentence a moment ago, Deborah. That's germane to this point now, where you said, "Honoring people where they are and where they want to go." And the American poet, is right. The Canadian American Mark Nepo says honoring means to keep what you know to be true in view. Now, if you look at what Finn has said about. There's a whole visible world of postgraduate study. So the stu- the teachers who are students on Finn's postgraduate course, and their, every HEI can uh, have similar courses. And there's an almost invisible, certainly subterranean world of informal or small local course learning that the public, this one I'm getting my, my question, would be largely unaware of. So they, they, the the public's understanding of the teaching profession in Ireland certainly would not be one that engages professional learning a systemic basis, and yet it happens so much. How visible or invisible is teachers learning in your context to your local community of parents and, and so on? How visible should it be in your view? Is, th- is this the wrong question I'm asking, I suppose?
0: I think to some extent it depends on the school. So one of the things, um, one of the roles that I have is I'm, I'm chair of the board of my children's primary school, local government primary school and as a parent at that school we're always aware that whenever there's a student free day and the teachers are learning, we're told what it is that they're doing. Okay, And they'll say the teachers are, you know, this is a student free day. Teachers are working on X or they're doing this course or they're, and it's part of our um, move towards being better at this. So they're, they are um, really explicit about that. We're probably less explicit. I mean, there's um, 186 teachers or something at my school. So I'm probably going to be less explicit with our families about exactly what those people are doing. Uh and um, 1,800-odd students from kindergarten to year 12, almost 300 staff all up. So, uh, certainly the school community might know those kinds of big-ticket items that we're working on. Uh, but um, I think the pandemic's been really interesting in in terms of revealing some of the public perceptions of teachers around the world. Uh, I mean, school's one of those things, isn't it, where everyone went, so everyone's got an opinion about how it should go uh, yes. and what teaching is. Um, but, yeah, I don't know to what extent it's important that – that a particular school community knows what those teachers are learning about, certainly about where the school's going and just to respect professionally for the people that are teaching the children in that community.
2: But what would it be worth exploring in terms of, I take your point because there's so much going on and there'd be the whole, there should be all sorts of industrial relation concerns if there was some kind of public declaration of here is all the study each teacher in the school is engaged in. But if you go back to your term at the beginning, of transformational learning, learning has a real impact on beliefs and, and behaviour, what we do, for example, that you may or may not be aware of, but we have an annual festival to mark World Teachers Day, and it's a pure, shameless celebration, right? So it's not about points for this or CPDs for the other. It's we create a space. We openly invite teachers to put forward what they're doing. And, and, there, and there has to be professional learning, you know, by definition behind it, but we don't drive. We simply say, tell us something exciting or innovation you're doing that you want to show off to your peers and show to the public. And we got 3,000 teachers uh, online now last year because of COVID, obviously, and 1,500 or peak views and about 100 showcases, let's say, of, of innovation. Should schools be in that space? I wonder in terms of – I remember when I was in school, actually, they did displays of students' work for parents and, you know, essays and so on. he would walk around the library, you'd look at essays, mm-hmm. and, and all schools do that. But we don't seem to do it for teachers in terms of whatever – not about any kind of accountability piece, but simply celebrating. Here's something different the teacher is doing. The learning might be almost incidental from the public's point of view, but look at what they're doing with their kids' learning because of, of this. But that's worth exploring. I wonder.
0: I mean, I think the things that do currently happen. Certainly, schools in Australia, in their annual report, list the professional learning that happens. So it's a more of a compliance than a mm. celebration in the annual report. Doesn't look that exciting. <laughs> uh, but also, I think social media has become that place where schools are using their social media feeds to say, "Hey, this," you know, um, this morning the year eleven engineering students were racing their go-karts around the oval wasn't that exciting or these were the students at the philosophy competition or so those kind of things are shared with communities through that social media kind of feed in terms of and therefore you do get a bit of a highlight reel of particular teachers and what they're doing not necessarily what they're learning although you do get some of that but there is some of that stuff chosen to be shared with school communities
2: and publicly Absolutely. i suppose no that's that's quite interesting because it's something i, I just i think in, for all the concerns around teachers working behind closed doors from my earliest time as CEO in the Teaching Council, I was always very struck. The community of teachers, a lot of teachers on Twitter, who were openly sharing resources, thoughts, opinions, etc., was phenomenal. Um, and I thought they're embracing, and, and they had, they they were ahead of us as an organisation in that space by, by a number of years. So I think you're actually correct that that's only been more and more. Schools are more open now about it in terms of. I've always had concerns, and I'm not sure what you either yourself or Femin you think about this, but there's such an anxiety very often now about sharing some of those kind of video clips you might talk about in terms of the go karting or whatever, because of, oh, identity, GDPR in, in the European context, privacy, and so on. And it's almost like we're in danger of going from an era where children were, not, were, not to, be, were to be seen but not heard or now they're going to be neither seen nor heard. But, you know, the, and they are the heart of teaching and learn. It's, it's for them we're doing this. So if we cannot see the smiles on their faces, the excitement as they're doing the various activities, there's something wrong in terms of our, our understanding of, of education, I would have thought.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree, Tomás. We, we, we just had, um, as part of our summer school, Deborah, we, we just had Michael Fullen playing a video clip of kids in Melbourne and it sealed the deal. It actually sealed the deal because it brings you back. Sometimes you forget when you have all these adults talking about teaching. You forget what what brings us together. But I I, I like your point, of, and and Tomas, yours in turn around the um, the celebration of teachers is through social media now. Maybe maybe not intentionally, but it certainly is is coming that way. Um, but equally, there's there's a professional learning opportunity coming through social media as well. That is not just simply, here's look what we're doing and, and celebrating student activities and teacher activities in turn, but we're actually accessing how to do things as well. And I'm just wondering, from your perspective, Deborah, with the, I, I won't say post-COVID, but that emerging uh, future that we're now tiptoeing into, Um, Do you see professional learning for your staff as being a different concept because of COVID?
0: Possibly. I think there's certainly some interesting things that have happened. Obviously, the sort of borderless professional learning um, has happened. There's some interesting emerging work from Cecilia Azarin, Alma Harris and Michelle Jones around what they're calling networked leadership. So um, sort of building on distributed leadership, but looking at how leadership is now networked uh, beyond Um, organizations and beyond countries, I suppose. There's lots of um, like these, you know, podcasts, webinars, um, international people getting together. I think that's been a real bonus of COVID, but I also have had a couple of experiences of trying to be at a Northern Hemisphere conference on a Southern Hemisphere timeline. uh, And that's sort of, I've tried really hard, but failed fairly dismally in terms of making that work, listening to the keynote while chopping carrots at the Kitchen table with my kids, or um, and not being able to stay up late enough to watch the watch the sessions and the breakout sessions, and so on, not having that opportunity to be switched off and fully present um, at some of that professional learning. So I think there's there's some a bit like with our distance learning that we've experienced. There's some great things to bring forward, and there's some things that will be nice when we're able to have them back.
1: Mm. I I I'm just struck, Deborah, about about that piece, and 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 it is a gender question as well. Going back to the earlier conversation about other responsibilities that people have, and I, I I'm just wondering, does the CPD professional learning take on new opportunities in the sense of you may not have to leave your home, uh, you may be able to look at a recorded presentation, uh, just that universal design for learning being stretched across professional learning opportunities, while at the same time conscious of what you said at the start, which is it could cause more stress and bring more anxiety that I must watch this video clip before I go to sleep tonight, as opposed to, well, actually, I just couldn't get there because I had to mind my mother or I had to do something with my kids or whatever. So I'm just wondering, do we need to support... Each other and support our colleagues around the opportunity it's a bit like a sweet shop we've got more opportunities to choose but we need to be careful about our diet and what else we're doing (laughs) in that context i don't know if if you have any thoughts on that
0: yeah i think intentionality is important but and i also think that there is a certain equity that comes with the online world because you don't have to find the money to fly somewhere and put yourself up in some accommodation, you can attend that conference without some of those funds that you might not have, for instance, like your school or your your district might not have. Uh, so I think there's some really positive things that are possible uh, and some really great collaborations that are happening. Like you said, you had Michael Fullan, um, you know, at online, and there's been lots and lots of those opportunities for people to um, draw from a range of different uh, perspectives and, and people of expertise. But, uh, yeah, I think there's also... Something about that, we talked before right at the beginning, Tomas, about that taking the time for stillness. And I think to some extent going to a professional learning opportunity is sometimes less about what you see while you're there, more about the conversations you can have and more about the protective time and space to think uh, and to reflect yeah. and to have a break from your normal place of work so that you come back feeling refreshed. Uh, so I think there's some of those sort of side effects of professional learning of attending it that we don't get when we're trying to fit it in
1: amongst everything else. No, that's that's very true. I can totally equate with that. My 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 last big travel was actually to Australia. So even the flight home brought an awful lot of learning and an awful lot of stillness and, and so forth. So you're so right. There are so many, what I might call fringe benefits around the, the face-to-face encounter, notwithstanding, I, I take your point about the equity and the economy of time and finances, as well, which is which is very true. Thank that, you.
2: That's an experience I can relate to as well. I, I did go to New Zealand and uh, Sydney some years ago for an international conference of teaching councils, and that time in the plane is, is can, can be one of those restful moments. But so can a podcast like this. Like this is <laughs> an, an extraordinary, you know, just reflective space. Yeah, it reminds me of, of the apocryphal story of the um, student of a guru who's obsessed with getting to Mount Everest. Wherever he or she is, and the guru says, well, "I won't let you go there because you're too obsessed with getting that particular outcome. Mm-hmm. You must discover that Montever is where you are right now." Mm-hmm. Um, so your idea—I love the idea of that. You, know, no matter where the professional may be, whether be—and you have to go to it, or you know, physically, or create space and time for it. That bubble you, you, you create for yourself. Mm-hmm. But and that brings me, if you don't mind, Deborah, because I, I was browsing obviously some of your blogs and preparing for this, and this concept of wayfinding—it uh, reminded me of something that I read about the practice of wayfinding some months ago, but the idea of wayfinding approach to school leadership. So mindful of that, can it, it, try and create that bubble in a fairly turbulent climate, let's be honest, can be quite a challenge. So to be honest, that's just a pathetic excuse to get you to talk about wayfinding leadership. So <laughs> if you don't
0: mind... <laughs> <laughs> i i will do so so i've got um there's a book that i've edited that's coming out later this year called uh, future alternatives for educational leadership uh diversity inclusion equity and democracy and there's a chapter in there that i've co-authored with a colleague uh claire college who and this is the great thing about collaboration we haven't sat in a room together to do this we've it's all been uh entirely online but we have explored this idea of what well, of, of wayfinding leadership, we're calling it, and uh, sort of reflecting on our own leadership journeys and on and on uh, sort of what's happened over the pandemic. But I've often talked about the fact that leadership's really about navigating tensions, whether it's the individual and the whole, uh, whether it's sort of strategy and systematisation, whether it's, you know, the greater good but or the good of the individual, like how do you make that? You're constantly making those calls. So, we looked at wayfinding uh, which is defined as different to route following. So, if you're following a route, the route's there and you're going along the predetermined path, whereas wayfinding is really finding your way. It's about not necessarily knowing the way and it's that iterative journey of figuring out the way as you go. Um, and so, and you know, it's it's a word that's been used by you know oceanic navigators of ancient times. You know, that using all kinds of interesting uh, input to try and find their way. And so, we talked about that as being you know intuitive and data informed. Uh, it's purposeful, but it's also responsive as responsive. You need to know yourself when you're finding your way, but you also need to really know and be responsive to your environment. Uh, there's roadblocks. So we, you know, there's one I can think of recently. COVID. Uh, but, you know, there's always roadblocks that you come across in leadership and you have to figure out well, what do we do now. So, it's not just about the fact that that you're heading in one direction and that your, your destination is necessarily predetermined. So, I think it was just a – it's a metaphor that we've explored in this chapter, which is a way of thinking about leadership in a way that's maybe a bit more subtle and nuanced. And it's more about the a way of leading and leading as a behavior than it is about being the leader or leadership as a thing that you do or that you own or a position. So it's, it's that, um, sort of very, Responsive, nuanced, balanced, um, knowing, but also intuiting, responding, um, agility, but also then being able to systematise, make decisions, move forward in a direction that makes sense to the context, to who you're with, using the instruments that are the right instruments, fit for purpose, to get you there. Uh, So we were just exploring that as a leadership, uh, as a as a metaphor for way of thinking
2: about leading. That sounds, to my ears, really exciting. But I suspect. I certainly feel might about this in the Irish context. We have a fairly centralised system still. I think there's different policy moves to try and you know support schools to unlock their own agency in different ways and take certainly more leadership at the local level of, of different aspects of curriculum and administration and so on. But that so I love the idea of that. But for 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 particular systems, that might sound like a nightmare. In term and particularly for the school principals themselves, where in Ireland certainly the circular can be is a huge part of the principal's life. It's a departmental document. There's lots of them issued each year on all sorts of aspects of school admin, curriculum delivery, and so on. And that's the bible very often for the principal. The folder circulars. They know exactly what to do. It may be a whole paper load nightmare. It may be a huge workload issue, but at least they know what they have to do. So how how does that wayfinding piece juxtapose with that and from what I'm saying to you here, you might be familiar with the context, but how, how will that pan out?
0: Well, I think that principles are always faced with compliance, expectations, accountabilities, uh, and then other issues like legal issues and so on that come up. Uh, and there's a an Australian researcher, Amanda Heffernan, who's done some really interesting work on principalship here and the way that principals can resist those things, can or do or don't resist those things. So, so I suppose it's about, um, it's part of that is navigating, playing that game of what are those things that I need to do because they are part of the systems, structures, and accountabilities that um, I need to to um, comply with for my school, but also knowing my context, knowing my people, protecting my community, doing the best thing for them. What are those other? What are the decisions that I have left to make? What are those things that I might resist or do differently? So I, I think that despite or because of some of those things, that principals can still make decisions, micro and macro decisions, in terms of what and how they do with those things.
2: That, that, speaking against myself here, because I'm probably be described as a, a system leader, the CEO of, of a national body in the Irish context, to what extent does the system need to get out of the way, Deborah, to facilitate wayfinding leadership?
0: Oh, well, I mean, there's. I'm just thinking about the, the range of systems that we've got around the world mm. from you to us to elsewhere. Uh, mm. I think... I don't, I mean, we can't be systemless, right? You have to, (laughs) I'm not an anarchist. I don't think we can be systemless. I mean, I was uh, co editor of the book Flip the System Australia, uh, What Matters in Education. So we didn't talk about, um, you know, well, you know, perhaps my co editor, Cameron Patterson, wanted to blow up the system, but uh, we did talk about, you know, liquefying hierarchies, about democratizing systems around, um Yelma, Eva's and Renee Niebuhr, when they first wrote the first book, edited the first book, that was for them around flipping the system in terms of the hierarchy where teachers get more decision-making power and have more agency and more voice within the system. Uh, and I think, to be honest, since they've written that, since they edited that book, that that has been happening. Uh, so, I think I th- one of the things we talked about before this podcast was around policy. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's another couple of Australian researchers, Stephen Lewis and uh, Anna Hogan, who talk about fast policy, the sort of reform first, ask questions later policy. Uh, And I certainly think about education policy in terms of what I see in Australia as it happens in political cycles. Uh, you know, political parties in, they need to turn something around in a really short period of time, they do a very quick reform or something that's kind of popular, uh, or something just before an election. And so there's nothing that is really playing the long game. So it's really I think about, um, I don't know about system as much as around, Well, you know, are we playing the long game in education? Are we thinking about the greater good? Are we thinking about what's going to um, help us as we move forward and thinking ahead instead of thinking about, well, am I going to get back in to political power in, in the next election, which is, I think, sometimes what's driving education reform.
2: This, this again, is really interesting because I think you're reminding me of of our own, There's, I said, there's shifts at the policy level towards a more framework based approach. Uh, if, if it's not getting out of, out of the way from what you're saying, I think there's certainly a challenge for different systems in terms of either slowing down or engaging in their own style of wayfinding leadership. So with the policy leaders and the, the political leaders perhaps, and certainly policy leaders like myself, would actually, you know, be more exploratory, not be so convinced so that, that that method of the fast reform is really a powerful one. You know, this is the reform. And we've had those urgencies in Ireland. We had the financial crash in the to 2010, which you a whole slew of reforms across the, the, the system, uh, the political system, certainly. And then, of course, COVID, like everybody else. So there is that sense in which, and, and the, the irony is, and this came up in an OEC webinar I was on, but two days ago, uh, there was a summit in France, an uniquely centralised system. And it's a, we're trying to make moves towards uh, frameworks and more autonomy for teachers at the local level. But then the teachers turn around and say, oh, we want more guidance and even rules, you know. And, and there's that piece in terms of that way of finding leadership, actually, that you mentioned, this, that I know that's what you're saying. That we don't, that's the next best step for us. So, you know, hang with us here and we'll, we'll, we'll work with you when you, know, and there's has to be front door of supports. But have you experienced that tension in policy and change management reform, Deborah? And I, am sure you come across it in your research. And what would your thoughts be on that? Where if, let's say, the center that the policy leaders traditionally say, okay, we, we get it. we need you know to support our teaching profession more research informed profession all the, the framework supports right the prescriptions but then we find unit leaders and teachers saying no no that's we're not we're, that's not what we're going to do with that's not for us what's what's your what would your thoughts be on that
0: as you are talking, I was actually thinking about teachers. I hadn't thought of wayfinding teaching, uh, but actually I was thinking about the fact that often what teachers really need to do is we're constantly responding to the students in front of us. We're constantly adjusting our practice based on what we see. So, But then you'll you also find that teachers will say, you know, but this is what the policy says, or just tell us what to do. Or So it's that permission to and capacity to use your own professional judgment. And I suppose whether you're in a classroom environment or a, a school leadership environment or, a you know, a, a system leadership environment, it's about that, um, you know, I always think we need strategy to underpin us. We need our ethical framework, you know, a kind of values framework to underpin our decisions. Uh, but then we actually need to, and we need research and evidence in terms of what do we know is our best practice in some circumstances, but then we need to really think carefully about whether it's a student in a classroom, a class, um, a particular cohort, whether it's a particular school, a staff member, like whoever we're making a decision with or for, it's really around, well, what does this person, this situation tell us in terms of what we need to do. So I'm probably in favor of values, frameworks, but then we also need to support, if we we're talking earlier about professional learning, teachers, school leaders, system leaders to actually have that that not just the permission, but also the confidence and capacity and resources to make those professional judgments and decisions. And and they need the the backing to know that someone's standing behind them to support them in that. Because I think that's where uh, in Either teachers or school leaders will um, come undone is when they say, "Well, I'm happy to make this decision, but I don't trust that you're actually going to stand behind me once I've made it."
1: That's a key tension. You're not quite vigorously there, as Deborah speaking. Mm-hmm. I'm so yeah, I'm key. taking notes as well. Yeah, <laughs> I, I love I love what you're saying, Deborah, and um, I think we're coming close to an understanding of that that tension between compliance and improvement. And um, compliance doesn't equate with improvement. Compliance equates with a security and a safety and, and maybe a middle ground to, to ensure, as you said in, in, uh, earlier about your role from a legal perspective, from um, a curriculum perspective and so forth. And I think there's, there's, um, there's, there's a clutch and accelerator always when it comes to education, I think, and a break when it comes to understanding um, how schools actually operate. And I think the word framework is very helpful as a scaffold but framework doesn't explain the decisions or the sequence of decisions that you're going to make as set against the context in which you find yourself. And here in Ireland, there's an invitation to self-evaluate, self-review, as opposed to perceive review as something that's done onto you. Um, And there's that tension between external and internal accountability, come responsibility, uh, as as the case may be. So I, I, I sense that that's... And I love your, 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 your work on the, the, the way of leadership, because I think that is the way of leadership. It's in that space between the external and the internal and, 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 and that constant, um, tension and, um, engagement between the two as played out by a teacher who might feel that they need to be told what to do. As opposed to another teacher who may wish to try something, um, with or without the uh, the uh, the the compliance and the blessing, let's say, of either you or uh, the system at large. So, I like one of the words that I, I keep coming back to is protection of staff is a key component of being a good leader. And equally, the other word I'm coming back to is that sense of professional trust. But that you have internal trust. You must trust yourself as a professional as well. And I think we need to be careful in our conversations about leadership and compliance that we don't deprofessionalize the profession by over over exerting that 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 sense of compliance or that perceived sense of compliance. But I I I I do sense that we need to go beneath the framework to look at the culture to to see. What is it that, that teacher leaders do? What is it that principals do? What is it that everybody working in a school actually does? And when I was a department inspector, there was two conversations. Conversations around compliance were black and white, cut and dry. Conversations around pedagogy, all bets were off because it was all about the student and the context. And I think there is, there is that distinction between the, the clutch and the accelerator when it comes to education. There are certain things that are non-negotiable, But there are certain things that are very negotiable based on you having to use your word again, Deborah, an intentionality around what you're doing and and a known purpose. So that that would be my response to, to what you and Tomás have been saying there.
2: Your I, I, the, the kind of a way of finding Deborah is like a pebble keeps dropping in my brain. Uh, I don't know what my brain is vacuous or full of fluid, but it keeps dropping. And I'm reminded of the, I'm a big fan of Star Wars and they have the series, once you go aware of The Mandalorian, where the refrain in the first series is, This is the way. Yes. All right. So, and it means everything, like all those mysterious statements it means everything that means nothing so if we follow the way there's a way of finding leadership and there's other quote from one of your blogs we need to engage with and provide safe spaces for our education debates including and especially those that are uncomfortable and awkward and that requires to examine our own motivations our own biases and our privilege so to extend the way to again so there's a the way find leadership at the policy space there's a the way find leadership at teacher level as you're saying at school level but that potentially that sense of viewer that I interpreted cast out into the community and, and further actually to, to state level in Australia, perhaps federal, certainly, and, and national level in Ireland. How ready are we for those kind of conversations, do you think, Deborah?
0: Well, I think that what I certainly realised about schools um, in the last sort of 12 plus months is that uh, and this is sort of a statement of the obvious, but, you know, there's things that you realise even though you already knew them, uh, is that schools are really such a reflection of society, such a barometer of what's happening in society, such a microcosm of society. And so all of those things in terms of people's wellbeing, people's sense of meaning, people's sense of belongingness, re- relationality, um, equities and inequities. So all of those things have sort of come into sharp focus, I think, um, thanks to the pandemic around the world. And so if I think about, um, and then it comes back to professional learning so for me one of the most important things is meaningful collaboration which doesn't mean that you're in a room together but it actually means you're willing to challenge one another to listen to one another to work um, potentially through some respectful conflict maybe towards better um, um better answers better um outcomes for people and i think you know i'm well aware that um you know i am a middle class white woman um, and so you know, I have privileges that that others don't have. So I think you know, there's things about um, questioning our own bias and our own, in- and when it is that we can use our influence positively, and when it is that we need to get out of the way, and for whom, and what does that look like? And so I think that um, certainly, how ready are we? I think we're possibly more ready than we have been before. Uh, if I think about the kinds of um, things that have come up across the world, everything from George Floyd in the US and the Black Lives Matter movement resurgence and you know there's all kinds of things that have really um, led us to a point where I think we are potentially ready to have those conversations or to challenge ourselves to question ourselves or you know I think it's, a, it's difficult and it's awkward and uh, and we need to be okay with uh, with challenge and with voices that perhaps are those voices that haven't necessarily been invited or heard previously.
2: If you don't mind, I'm going to take that strand and go if you're happy with, there's another reference in one of your blogs that really, and there's so much in, in, catches my eye in this space from, from your own writing and, and, and thoughts and what you say, but the language of the hard in education, the reference to the Uluru statement, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. and Uluru. Uluru. And um, we have a process where we're modern with the OECD, uh, teacher-parent-student conversation at the community level, And where I've seen it happen in all sorts of communities, now a small number, but quite diverse uh, profile communities, particularly disadvantaged, socioeconomic disadvantage, that when the humanity is unveiled, when they're brought to a safe space and they're asked in in their peer groups to say, how would you like everyone else to see you as a principal, a teacher, a student? Trust is not very quickly, but there's quite a amount of vulnerability in the room. So principals will speak in front of students and parents at the same time, I'm stressed out. I really care about the school, but my work there is horrendous. And the students, when they're asked what surprised you, they'll say, we never thought the principals are so stressed, even though they're in the same building as them, you know, I'll be in different rooms. And we, and most movingly, we never knew how much they cared. So can you say a bit more, a bit like, you know, another pathetic excuse for you to talk about something, talk about the language of art in education? Because I think that's something, particularly in the where policy inter- intersects with the lived reality of schools, it's a, it can be a deeply uncomfortable space for people. Um, and mindful of, as I assume, the ethnic context with this. And, you know, we have ethnic, you know, in terms of the travelling community here, um, Irish-speaking communities on the Western seaboard and so on. So every country is facing this issue in different ways. But tell me a bit more about the space that's there for the language of the heart in education or what that term means. Maybe I'm, I'm getting it wrong.
0: Well, I think there's sort of, I don't know if those things are, they're connected but separate because the Uluru Statement uh, from the heart is from our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders people in Australia, so our First Nations people. And what it what it calls for is, among other things, a First Nations voice in our constitution uh, and um, and for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples to have um, a say in Australian government, considering that they were the First Peoples here for um, some 60-odd thousand years before white settlement um, and have been treated absolutely terribly. And there's all kinds of um, destabilising and marginalising um, influences of that. Um, and quite a violent kind of colonial history. Uh, And I suppose using that as an example uh, is slightly depressing because that was a 2017 statement that has as yet had no actual impact. However, the language still remains super powerful um, and something that is being drawn upon. And then you you sort of draw that to what about... um, educators, teachers, school leaders, um, and using that language of the heart. I certainly think, like, if you look at, um, you know, one of our neighbours, Jacinda Ardern, as Prime Minister of New Zealand, uh, you know, she talks quite a lot about, uh, you know, language of the heart, of empathy, of humanity, of leading in a way that is not only authentic, but actually, uh, I suppose, um, Heartfelt, heart-filled, heart, um, and very, very open. So, I think there's probably more examples around the world, and certainly in school leadership, it's becoming more perhaps more acceptable than it used to be to be um, an empathetic and, and open, openly vulnerable leader than perhaps uh, when it was more traditional that one was the charismatic and heroic uh, leader out in front of one's organization, that it's actually um, okay to be vulnerable empathetic and um and talking about matters of the heart
2: so i wonder to and again you may have thoughts on this but also to, to both of you, maybe deborah first but mind that comment to what extent i mean it seems to be quite a an almost global issue in terms of uh stress and workload for school leaders certainly yourself and andy spoke quite again moving in our the, the webinar recently about the, the, the morale of the teaching profession and as you are observing it and aware of it at this Kind of 15-month point of a prolonged pandemic, to what extent are those issues related to perhaps, and I, I say this myself as a, as a leader, I've gone through my own reflective journey, sometimes we're overly focused on the role and forget about ourselves as people and the people in front of us. So, you know, that we have a job to do rather than we have people to teach, we, we have people to work we have adults to work with, and so on. Is that kind of an issue in your view, Deborah, or a mouth the mark?
0: Well, I think we've you know, had to think more and more about humanity and education and the humans in the schools. Uh, So, and I think we talked before about resisting accountabilities and compliance. I think probably there have been teachers and school leaders who thought, you know what, like this is, and even, you know, things like universities having alternate ways for students to get in. It's about, you know, what's actually important here are the individuals and what are the ways in which we can allow them to show their learning and understanding in ways that are different,
2: perhaps, to what we've done before. The idea of the focus on role versus person and and does that somehow generate some of the stress because you're so concerned about fulfilling the role rather than being yourself, You being vulnerable in front of other people. Does that or excessive focus on role as opposed to person sometimes drive the concerns and the genuine feelings of stress or being overwhelmed, etc.
0: I do think teachers often put themselves last and put their students first. Uh, I also think teaching in particular, full-time teaching and school, you know, school leadership is differently stressful, but full-time teaching is uh, more than a full-time job. You know, the professional responsibilities are huge. So if you are managing those professional responsibilities, that's, that's always going to be challenging and then you add in something like a pandemic where everyone's kind of emotional uh, and relational cups are empty uh, where you know those kind of things that normally nourish us and, and feed our well-being are not there and then you've got someone who um, you know is working really hard to fulfill the needs of their students to fulfill their professional responsibilities uh, and then we also yeah there's, I think there's just so much going on at the moment for people in terms of um, having a lot of things, emptying our cups and not a lot, filling them back up again. Yeah.
2: Mm. Can, can I, we're in the last few minutes, believe it or not, I can't believe this, <laughs> the hour is almost up. So mindful of that sense of the, the you know the cup is well and truly drained at the end of the academic year, mindful of the turbulence you've spoken with in so many different ways and this is a question I put into the OCU webinar to that teacher in Canada. I won't give you his answers just to keep the, <laughs> the page clean. But if, if you were to pick Three things that you believe, either projects or concepts, there are three things you believe that should be a particular focus of education and systems in the next six months timeframe. What would those things be?
0: Uh, teacher and student well-being, okay. and I think that's that could probably be it. That's major project. Okay. Uh, uh, that's a major project because that means um so many things uh i think michael fallen in his latest paper around um the right six right drivers maybe for education he put well-being and learning together he integrated them and sort of said you know you can't have one without the other and they are absolutely integrated we need to think about them together but that's to do with not only our you know physical and um emotional health and well-being it's about sense of purpose it's about belonging it's about relationships it's about you know meaning uh and, um, yeah, the emotions that we're feeling, it's, that's super complex. So I think that would be a major one. Oh, it would be nice to see something around what we were talking about in terms of systems and accountabilities, the sort of neoliberal aspects of our education system uh, and marrying that with teacher agency, teacher professional trust, teacher professionalism, investing in teachers. So I suppose um, increasing of one and, and um, rethinking of another And I might leave it there because that's kind of four things. It is? It's 2 pairs. Um, I'm an English English and literature teacher. So, you know, (laughs) I I make three into four. (laughs) Um, So, teacher well-being, student well-being, not necessarily in that order, sort of everybody's well-being uh, and... And including in that school leader wellbeing as well, uh, because the the research just has terrible things to say about the wellbeing of leaders. Uh, And then a kind of dual focus on both um, supporting the teaching profession and the work of schools through uh, policy and then in doing so sort of investing in uh, teachers, um, our professional trust of them, our professional respect for them and um, our investment in them as individuals.
2: It's a lovely way to close off there. I mean, there's so many thoughts popping off in my head. Number one, we started with, you know, talk about intrigue and danger uh, at the beginning of the podcast, but we're on this lovely zone of, you know, well-being, meaning, and purpose. And we also opened with, you know, uh, you making uni at age 16, and making, you're given three things to uni, do four. You you, you super achieve as a (laughs) That's so 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 well done um whatever look it's it's the time is almost up uh, as always this is my third now it's my first i suppose in prolonged engaged conversation with just yourself i'll be with a a great irish colleague and friend here beside me as well but it's just great to have had more time to really delve deeper into your thinking different things and there's so much more i think you said maybe in the prep beforehand we could spend about one hour talking about any one of these questions but we want to kind kind of cover a breadth of things so Number one, I want to thank you most sincerely, Deborah, uh, for talking to us across the oceans uh, on this podcast. I um, hope that those who listen to the podcast have found it every bit as inspirational and thought provoking and reflective, and and still perhaps as, as as we found it here. I want to thank my my colleague and friend Finamuru, the head of Mary Mac the College, Paris campus, uh,
1: for agreeing. Finamuru, would actually go off. An interview. Who are you interviewing? In the moment? I, I, uh, I'm meeting the, up with Patsy Salberg in in the next hour. Actually, so it's uh, it's yeah. an Australian day for 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 me.
2: <laughs> so you know, we
1: well, Irish we, get around. We Irish get around. You know, we're talking we, to we, we, we we certainly do. So to Passy
2: yeah. next. Yeah. So this this is good. So thank you both. I want to thank all our listeners uh, for continuing to tune into our podcast series uh, around the world, wherever you may be listening to this. If you have enjoyed this episode, please do share the link with your friends across the usual platforms. Don't forget to subscribe, please, to this podcast in the usual way. You can find us on all major podcast channels. If you have any comments or thoughts, you can find us on Twitter, at Teaching Council, all one word, at Teaching Council, or email us directly at communications at teachingcouncil.ie From Deborah Edelitsky, from Finna Marglu, and from myself, Tomas O'Rourke, Gormil Mahagri, thank you so much. Stay safe and stay connected, everybody.